were you and the children of God when Ricky passed away or? I, I had just been signed to Columbia Records and we were working on my album and that's when that happened. And then my manager who knew, because at that time I didn't talk to anybody about it. I was still like really processing it, but he knew because we were dating as well. And so then something happened where it's like all of a sudden the label somehow knew that I used to be in the family as well. And Mm. so then my manager came up to me and he was like, they just found out and they think this could be a really good, almost like a marketing thing. And I was mortified Mm -hmm. because I was still processing it. I'd never really spoken to anyone about it. I had never been to therapy. I was literally like, I didn't know where I stood with anything. And so then I had to go on Oprah and all that stuff. And like, although I don't really regret it, I do regret it because I feel like I wasn't really ready yet to talk about anything. And so I feel like it was not yeah. as, it wasn't what I wanted it to be at all. I didn't know what I was talking about. I was still trying to protect people and be on the down low and just try to keep things hush. I had left in 2001. So yeah. that was like at that four year, five year mark where I was like starting to question. Yeah. Right. And it was, right. was probably the first time too that you got faced with the way that general society was going to look at it like you're a monkey in a cage it's not let me connect with you on a personal level let me understand your story it's oh my god tell me the juicy bits so that i can like oh, it, yeah it, it's, it's a yucky feeling so i can imagine that yeah i can imagine that for you it i'm was so really sorry horrible and i went to media <laughs> training but like you're trying to media train me how to talk about my life like i hadn't <laughs> i didn't have the distance to look at it that way. So they're like, yeah, I'm, I'm really glad you asked asked that question, Bob. I'm in media training, training <laughs> to do that. And it's so inappropriate. It's crazy. It was really scary for me. Oh, my goodness. So were you born into the cult? Yeah. My dad is Little Black Zach, as he's known, because he was doing some music stuff or whatever with them in the 70s. He joined in the 70s. And so I was born in... 1980. And yes, both of my parents were full-fledged in it. They were a singing duo. That was my parents' deal. They were like, okay, yeah, we're buskers. And so we busked for the Lord. (laughs) 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 But yeah, I was born in Aruba. My mom's from there. I'll give you a little bit of of history. So my dad was born in South Carolina. And so he dropped out during his first semester of college that his adopted mom had scraped together the money for, sent him to college. He was on the campus. School bus rolls up. All the hippies pour out saying, we love you, brother. And as a short black man in the South of the U.S., he was starved for love. He was starved for affection as part of a marginalized group. And he saw them as these sort of like alienish superheroes and so he just Mm. grabbed his stuff from his dorm jumped on and dropped out on my mom's end she's from the caribbean and so they had some you know missionaries there and they witnessed her got her in she ended up leaving and then during the searchers era was when they sent some searchers to love her back in which they did and when the searchers found her she was a single mom or pregnant with my older brother because my parents had met in the Caribbean and Jamaica somewhere. And my dad asked my mom to marry him and she said, no, then she bounced, left the family. Searchers mm-hmm. came, joined again, <laughs> met my dad again, said, yes, had me. So I'm the second from my mom and the firstborn from my dad. 
But we were living in, or my parents were witnessing to my mom's dad at the time in Aruba, but they were living in a a van that my dad converted into a camper that didn't have wheels. So it was just perched in like a, a garage or like a auto shop. That was my home where I was born into. Wow. Oh, wow. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And then it was every two years, another little sibling was born in a different (laughs) place. Yeah. Sounds about right. That's a very similar story. How do you two know each other? We met in Thailand when we were teenagers in the cult. I had just gotten to Thailand from the jumbo in the Philippines And I was being sent to Chiang Mai to go to their little teen training thing that they had going on with 10 teens or something. And so I went up there and I met Whisper. And one day everybody went to the park and there was a huge lake and everybody went to go walk or hike or something. And for some reason, did you have a twisted ankle or something? I think I did or Maybe it's cramps. Something like that, period cramps or something. We didn't want to go walk. And so we were like, (laughs) no, can we just sit here? And they're like, fine. So we just started talking and we just never stopped. (laughs) Yeah, it was really funny because we'd we'd actually been, we'd been together. We'd been hanging out already. But that wasn't like the first time we met each other. But you never had time to sit and talk with somebody. Like you never did. You were scheduled down to your, like your poops. So it was like the first time we had this like substantial time to sit and talk. And we were like, what the heck? Yeah, we yeah. just, yeah, like, we just you, talked. You're my talked. other half, what? Yeah, yeah, it was right <laughs> then and there. We just, I don't know, fell in love. <laughs> yeah. And then, and then when we went to the training center in Bangkok, because they put us all on a train and uh, sent us down there, her and I sat up all night long talking the whole entire mm-hmm. night on the train. <laughs> just, la, 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 la. Yeah. <laughs> That was really great. Yeah. And then the second we got down to the main teen training, they split us up. But yeah, instantly. Mm. Oh, you guys like each other? Mm -mm. Okay. Mm. Two separate rooms. Don't talk. Don't sit next to each other. Nothing. No Mm. contact. But somehow we stayed in contact. I don't even know how we stayed in contact. It's crazy, actually, because I went to Russia and she went to Jamaica and somehow... We stayed in contact throughout the years. We always wanted to do something together. We just didn't know what. Mm-hmm. And then when Whisper came up with the bright idea of doing a podcast, <laughs> I was all in. <laughs> did you did you two used to write each other letters? I remember doing that. Yeah. Oh yes. I still yeah. have a whole bunch of them actually, a whole bunch of letters <laughs> that she wrote me. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. That's so sweet. We didn't introduce the episode. That's normal for us. <laughs> the introduction comes like, talking. yeah, yeah, it comes like five minutes in. We're like, oh, hey, hang on, hang on. <laughs> Welcome. <laughs> yeah. Um, for those uh, joining us for the first time, uh, I'm Whisper and my co-host and BFF Jemima. And today we're super, super excited about our guest, uh, Susan Cagle. Am I? Did I Thank say that right? So yeah, you sent it perfectly. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, we're super excited. The first time I heard of you, I didn't know that you were an ex-member or anything. Somebody forwarded or I saw a clip, like a video clip of you singing in the subway. 
Mm. And your voice, was, I was like, who is this? Later on that I found out to your next member, I was like, what? That is, it was, it was wow. like one of those crazy things, you know? Oh my God, yeah, that's you have so funny. amazing, beautiful voice. Wow. When did you leave? I left officially in 2001. Okay. There was a lot of us left right around that time, I think. Yeah. Wow. Just after the whole Y2K thing and all of that. Yeah. yeah. I actually mm-hmm. got excommunicated for smoking pot mm-hmm. and I was going to rejoin. But then I met Ricky and James Penn. <gasps> and Ricky? Oh, yeah. Yeah. He stayed with me when he left his mom's house. He came straight to my apartment because Are I was living serious? near Seattle. Yeah. Because I had known James Penn had been a supporter of our work in Russia. After Thailand, I went to Russia and we started a project there called Love's Bridge. And we fed homeless kids and got them back in school and all this kind of stuff. The project is still going today, actually. It's mm-hmm. run by Russian nationals. And wow. yeah, I know it's super exciting because that's, hey, we actually did do some charity work. Okay. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> Everything that we, that we said we did, but we were actually just postering and like trying to survive. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. exactly. But we actually did something in Russia. We set up the whole thing, got the whole thing going from nothing. And James Penn was one of our supporters because he was working with the Family Care Foundation in California Mm. and they had heard about what we were doing. So he got involved. And so he ended up sending us like 20 bucks a month or something. But that's how we lived. Got 100 people sending us 20 bucks a month. We're going to make it. (laughs) Right. So then when I got back to the States, I met him and he had already left. I don't know if you ever read his like little dissertation or whatever called No Regrets. I think it's I have no regrets or no regrets. I don't think so. But -hmm. it was all about why he left and some of the things that were going on behind the scenes that, of course, he was privy to that none Mm -hmm. of us knew about. And when I started hearing all of this stuff, I was just completely floored. The thing that pissed me off the most was that Mama Maria had a thousand dollar a week budget for her food. I was like, are you fucking kidding me? I'm a starving single mom on the mission field having a baby. And we're on like food rations of half a cup of milk and one piece of cheese a day. And you have a thousand dollars a week for yourself. That just, that, that. I don't know why, but that one particular thing, just, I was like, wait, stop the presses here. Hang on. Yeah. Cause all of our parents something. were so poor. I know. I remember reading something after I left on one of those sites, maybe it was from James Penn that, that talked about how they had just piles of cash laying around so much. They did that. They didn't really know what to do with it. I, I don't know where I read that from. Yeah. But yeah no. It's so disturbing because I remember living in buses or living in vans as like real the real practitioners of this and just not having money but like dad sending our tithe in on yep. on the dot like clockwork yeah that's a difficult way to grow up and then to hear that's how they were living was just like yeah that, this is completely so you're telling me to do something and you're doing something completely different and then he also told me that David Berg was an alcoholic and died of alcoholism, which of course none of us also knew because we weren't even barely allowed to drink one cup of wine a week 
<laughs> you can have a beer a week, but you got to pour out two sips because that's two more ounces than you're supposed to have. Yeah. <laughs> really, really, so really weird. weird measurements, like the four ounces of wine. and yeah. yeah. So when the charter came out, my family mm-hmm. was, we were, what is the word I'm trying to remember? But we were not like in the inner sanctum at that time. We were like oh. um, TSers. Yeah. What does so that even we stand were- for? The side, isn't it like fellow? It's like FFM. I thought like fellow, fellow members, FMers. Okay. Yeah, that's right. And, and so, like, then there was DMers, or I can't remember what the other. Yeah, were. yeah. But we had you still had to send in the tithes. You still got the mole letters, and you, right. you still had to read the charter. But you basically didn't have certain things. Like we didn't have enough adult members because it was just my family for so long, and I don't think there was anything else, but. I think that was like the one reason why we weren't like full members or whatever at that time. And we weren't allowed to drink or anything anyway, because my dad, he was just in love with them so much. And that's one reason why we traveled around a lot, because no family home was good enough for him because they didn't follow everything to the T. Oh, wow. oh. <laughs> but yeah, we weren't allowed to drink yeah. anyway. My parents didn't drink, so we never did any of that. Did you live overseas in during your yeah. time in the? We lived growing up in the Caribbean, Puerto Rico, the islands, as well as Mexico, up and down the East Coast. But a, a lot of our time was spent in Europe. It was like Italy, Greece, France, England, and yeah. and all that. So I never lived in any of the other homes that, like the Thailand homes or Japan or any of those places. The one where everybody was yeah. extra bonkers. <laughs> extra bonkers yeah i can only imagine it wasn't fun <laughs> it never was <laughs> i think each area had their own thing i know there was some crazy stuff that went on in europe too that wasn't like some people really suffered in that area too so everybody had their own little corner of the world with their own special little, little suffering gifts <laughs> yeah what was the circumstances around you leaving how old were you when you left? I was 21. Your, okay. I was going to say about 20, 21. Yeah. yeah. I was 21 and we were living in New Jersey, I think for maybe three or four years. I'm not sure if, if we left and went to Miami and then came back during that interim, but I wanted to leave. When we lived in England, I left my parents and I joined the bus team there and there was like a teen camp and and I was part of the bus team still singing to make money but it within that structure and I was 12 and 13 at that time and then mm-hmm. came back and joined my parents again and that's when I realized that I basically lived in a cult within a cult <laughs> because the stuff that I was like allowed to do on the bus team was pretty crazy and I think London in general was very I think a little freer than a lot of the other countries and homes in other, in other countries. They were a little more lax on things. They were still strict, but it's, there weren't any physical punishments or anything like that. When I went back to my parents and saw how they were living and stuff like that, then I started having these sort of arguments with my dad, same arguments that my brother had when he was 21, when he left. But at this time, I was like 13 and 14. And we were traveling through Europe busking. And so I would start these arguments and I would get beat up just questioning things. And Mm. it was very lonely for me because it was my family, mom, dad, and nine kids at the time. And just reading the word and living in hotels and roaming from place to place. And then staying at the occasional family home here and there. When we went back to the States, 
I was around 17 at that time. And that's when I really made the decision to dedicate my life to Jesus. Because prior to that, it was very rough between me and my parents. But just before that happened, we were living in this house and I was very serious about leaving. In my head, I was like, I don't want to live like this anymore. I want to have an education and I want to go to school. But at the same time, all my brothers and sisters were there. So I didn't really want to abandon them. And so then something Mm -hmm. happened where I was thinking all these thoughts. And then I think I talked back to my dad and he swung like a two by four. He was renovating the side of that building of of our apartment inside one of the rooms. And so he swung it on me and broke my finger. And I wasn't allowed to go to the hospital or anything like that. It was just a, a situation where I was like, okay, put some ice on it. It'll be fine. I didn't realize this until many years later when I thought about it, but I was like, okay, that was around the time that I decided to dedicate myself to the family. So I must've been like Mm -hmm. sitting there in the dark with like my, with my finger throbbing and just like crying with, to myself. I didn't know anyone. (laughs) The only person that I knew that was outside of the family were my grandparents who lived in South Carolina. And I wasn't that close to them because I didn't get to see them all that much growing up. I didn't know anybody else. There was one person that I knew who lived with us. My my parents witnessed to this person when we were singing and she joined our family (laughs) and she was traveling with us and she was from the States, but she was visiting Europe at the time that she joined. And so I had her number, but I hadn't spoken to her in years. And I knew that she had gone back to the States because she eventually left. And so I called her and then she was just, hey, like, I was like, hey, and then I hung up. And after that point, something inside of me was like, I've got to dedicate my life to the Lord and do this for real and stop trying to get out. And so that happened. And then in 2001, I was so desperate for change because the mole letters or whatever, they, they tell you, don't get a job, stay outside of the system. And so that's what my parents were doing, but we were living in the poverty level. And I was like, we're all smart. Let's, can we please? And so more arguments started again during that time, mm. but they weren't really arguments. They were me like going off into the corner and let, trying to strategize and come up with plans on how we could make money and become more established. And I would present these to my parents and they would be like, oh, laughing at me like, oh, Susan, the Lord's coming back real soon. You know, none of this matters. None of this matters. And I was so desperate for change. Like I wanted friends. I wanted to know what it was like to be kissed, to have a relationship of my own because my parents had each other. And then we're reading all these mole letters about it's a sex cult, pretty much. I'm here looking around and I would just go in the bathroom and just cry. That was my only release, my only pleasure in life. And so I finally convinced my parents to let me go singing in the subway with just the older guys. So it wasn't like mom, dad, and all the kids. I was like, hey, you guys can stay here. You can work on your newsletter. You can do all the back-end business stuff, and I'll all go on the attack team, me and three of the older kids. And we put together some new songs. My parents said, okay. We put together some songs. We went out and we were singing in the subway. And I was like, okay. It was just like a little sigh of relief. And I was at our 20, yeah. 21 at that time. And that was the first time that I was ever allowed to do something on my own. <laughs> wow. You know? Um, and so we were still doing the same thing because that's all we knew. But that's what my parents allowed me to do. It, it was during one of these performances in the subway. It was actually at Bryant Park, 42nd Street in Manhattan, underneath the subway, underneath Rockefeller Center, that this guy was in the audience and he was like, or whatever, flirting. And so he came up and talked to me afterwards. And so so we just started talking and he was a web designer. And I was like, really, I was asking him about it. I was like, oh, how do you do? And he was like, hey, here's my number. And so that then 
I started to sneak and call this person. I started to sneak around and find ways to call from payphone or from here or from there. And so then I would tell him where we were going to be performing next. Then he would come with his camera or whatever, and he would just hang out. We started talking and hanging out and my parents weren't there. So this was totally doable. And then we fell in love. But then eventually my parents found out because I think one of the kids told them that I was talking to this guy. And so then my dad, he was like, oh, hell no, this is not going to happen. You're not doing this anymore. I leave you guys alone for one minute and this happens. So he was like, we got to go back to the whole family singing together again. And he was like, you can't talk to this person. He's a systemite. He's a freaking systemite. (laughs) And so I I was trying to do the right thing. And I was like, mom, dad, I feel like he's a good guy. Maybe we can witness to him. I'm sure he could find the Lord later. But they were like, no. So I met up with him and I was like, listen, I got to tell you something. I'm part of this group. We have very strict beliefs and we're not allowed to really fraternize with anybody outside of the group. And he was like, I don't really care about any of that. And I was like, you don't understand. I'm trying to tell you that I cannot see you anymore. We were like at a McDonald's in, in the subway, like the underground McDonald's that's like in the subway somewhere. And he was like, I don't care. And I was like, I can't see you anymore. And so basically what ended up happening from that conversation was that he said that he was going to rent a hotel room in the same hotel that we were living in so that we could spend time together, so that we could spend the night together. Okay. So so we did. And that was like the second time that I had ever had intimate relations with anyone. And then the next day... (laughs) My dad, I guess he found out, but needless to say, we were getting ready to go singing, packing up up all the equipment and everything like that. And I was just talking to my dad and I was like, dad, I really love him. Dad, I really want to be with him. And we were just having this argument while we were packing up all of our gear. And I don't remember what I said, but I must have said something. When I talked to my dad about this later, he said that what was happening was that I was talking and talking and I just wouldn't stop talking. But he basically swung an acoustic guitar at me, which broke on me and splintered. And I, I guess I raised my hand up to protect myself. And so there was like a huge gash. There was blood everywhere. Oh my God. And, and I was just, I just, I remember him just attacking me and like basically just beating me up. And, and, I remember something so profound. It changed my life in that moment because I had been beaten previously, but this time something happened where I knew that I was not going to back down even if I was killed. I was prepared to die. It was like this calm acceptance came over me and I was like, he's going to kill me and I don't care. I don't fucking care because I don't want to live like this anymore. Afterwards, I was like, I'm sorry, I'm going to keep seeing him. And then dad was like, okay, listen, here's the deal. If this guy is is so great, as you say, and he's so nice and he is a Christian and at least he believes in Jesus and all these things, why don't you ask him to give you the money for us all to go to Europe? Because we were trying to raise money to go to Germany at the time because one of our brothers was there. And so we were going to go to him and (sighs) he said, ask him for the money. And I was like, okay, I'm sure he'll give it to a really nice guy. He'll, he'll give us the money. And so I asked him for the money and he said, yes. And so he gave my parents the money for all of us to fly to Germany. My gosh. Which we did. And this is like probably maybe a week after 
that the hotel incident when we like spent the night together, he gave us the money and we all packed up and, and flew to Germany. And I had gotten a UTI. I thought I was like pregnant or something and miscarrying. I don't know, but I had pains in my stomach and my parents were like, this is what happens. <laughs> and yeah. it eventually got so bad that we were in Germany and I was like, I got to go to the doctor. I got to go. And so I went to the doctor and they were like, oh, it's just a UTI, whatever. But it really got me thinking. And I was like, I want to go back. <laughs> I want to go back. I want to go back and see him. And all of my brothers and sisters were really sad. They were crying and they were like, Susan, please don't go. And I had a conversation with my mom. And this was in Germany. We were all there. I had a conversation with her and they were happy. They basically got me to FF the sky. Yep. Because <laughs> thinking about it yep. later, I was like, what the fuck? Like, right? I yep. FF someone. And they expected <laughs> to just be like, okay, yeah, he was a fish. He was a good guy. He gave us the money. Now we move on with our life and that's it. I pulled my mom to the side one day and I was like, mom, mom, do you, do you want your kids to ever find love, have their own lives, be their own people? And she said, what better place could there be in the world than here serving the Lord with your family? Yeah. And that's when I knew, that's when I knew that we had all been lied to because in my mind, like growing up in this as a kid, I'm thinking that we're all trying to do what's best for everyone, right? Like we're all trying to get to this place where we can live comfortably and this sort of utopia, right? Like there's always like utopia that they dangle in front of your miserable life, right? Because you're out there, you're hustling from birth. You're slaving away, you're being exploited, having to go make money to support your family and the home. But there's always this thought that it's going to be better one day. It's going to be better one day. But then when I had that conversation with her, I realized they were happy. They joined this. This is the life that they wanted exactly as it is. They didn't want it to be any better. They were using us to be witnesses for God's love, Mm -hmm. which is what they said to the whole world. Everybody else gets a taste of God's love, but us, right? We're just supposed to be the messengers. And I was like, wow, they will never want things to be any different. And I've just been lied to for 21 years of my life. And so I flew back. The guy, he sent me money for a ticket back and I flew back (laughs) and he was only 21. (laughs) Like he was 21 year old kid and he had just gotten his first job or something like that. And he had, I don't know, maybe $5,000, $10,000 in savings or something that he had saved up over the course of like his whole life. And when I flew back, I, I lived with him and his mom and his sister and his brother in their little tiny little New York apartment. And I had such wacko beliefs as well because 9-11 happened literally like a few weeks after I moved back. Yeah. <laughs> it was so bizarre. It was just mom, dad, and everyone being like, we told you. They were trying to use it to promote the fact that this is what happens or something like that. <laughs> oh, but yeah, I was terrified. He ended up up getting us a little basement apartment in Sunset Park, Brooklyn. And I lived there with him. And the first day in the apartment by myself, I would just look around and I would just be like, (laughs) what now? Where am I? What do I do? (laughs) I would become very melancholy because I was just thinking about my brothers and sisters still having to go sing in the subway and still getting beaten and still having to read the Mo letters and 
it was hard for me to really acclimate to my new life because I was just shell-shocked, I think. Yeah. And I didn't really know what to do. And all I knew was singing in the subway. And so after some time passed, I still had that indoctrination of that education is bad. I still believed that it was like a plot. It was the system I was trying fighting against. I was like, no, I'm not going to go to school. No. Okay. I'm just going to go sing in the subway. And yeah, and that's what I knew how to do. So that's what I did. Is that how you got discovered? Yeah. You know, um, how did you bust into the music world type of thing? Because lots of people try to do that. <laughs> yeah. I was actually approached by so many people for this opportunity or that one. And I just didn't do it because it was the system. And I was still so brainwashed. And so what ended up happening was I get a call from my parents or my siblings or something like that. And at the time, I was like, okay, let me see if I can do this music thing. And I was in um, negotiations with a small record label in New York. But I was also living in the basement of the studio with my boyfriend because we were homeless. This is after I left my, my first after I left that guy and I was doing music or whatever. So I was living there and then I get this call from my siblings and they're like, Hey, we're stranded in Morocco with no money. What they did was they bought this old postal van and my dad built it out like a camper. And th their plan was to drive to Senegal to West Africa from Germany. And they got stuck in Morocco with no money. Okay. And so I went singing in the subway to raise money so that they could fly to England. And I think I borrowed some money or something like that. I managed to scrape together the money and I sent it to them. They went to England and then at some point they ended up in New York. I don't remember how that happened or whatever, but they ended up with me <laughs> living in the basement of the studio, <laughs> all of them. <laughs> and... The kids that were with my parents said, hey, we've made a decision. We no longer want to be in your band. We want to be in Susan's band. I was like, you know what? I, oh, man, my hubris during that time was fucking crazy. But I was desperate. I was like, I could probably do a better job than you guys. So, yeah, sure. You guys can come with me. We'll go off and we'll do music together and we'll take care of each other and we'll make that happen. And the youngest three siblings stayed with my my parents. And then the the middle three, and there was another older sister that went with my parents as well. So I had some and then my parents had some and we just kept singing in the subway. And we ended up getting a little apartment, a three-bedroom apartment. But that was such a crazy situation because during that time... I was getting serious about being in the industry. And so I was talking to the managers and this and that and really making it work because I was like, okay, we got to make some money here. We were talking to various managers. We were doing photo shoots. We were st starting to package our band. Yeah. And and so we had this th three-bedroom apartment. And then a friend of mine, this person that I knew, called me up one day and she was like, Susan, I'm, I'm homeless. I have no money. Can I please stay with you for a couple of days? And so I was like okay, it's a full house right now because it was me and my boyfriend, my brother and his girlfriend, and then oh, wow. three siblings, three of the other smaller ones. So she moved in 
And around that time, my parents called as well (laughs) and said, Susan, we're desperate. We have nowhere to stay. Can we just stay with you guys? I cursed myself. I cursed myself for this. But I said yes. (laughs) (laughs) So now we've got my parents living there. This woman, Lanine, who ended up staying so long that I couldn't kick her out because of like renter laws. I had to call the police. Police came and they were like, I'm sorry, we can't kick her out because she's been here already for a month or two. It was some rule, Um, some law. And so then she was like, Susan, I'm not leaving. I'm sorry. And so then I was like, okay, this is wacko because my parents were living there too. We were all, all crammed in. So I bounced from the apartment with my boyfriend and we moved into a small little room up the street. And nice job. And everything just started going downhill. Oh. We had a manager and we were sh- shopping around to different labels because he was shopping us around to different labels. So then Columbia Records came down to the subway to see us. Various labels came down to the subway to see us. That was like our showcase. But we were still performing trying to do the industry thing as well as battling mom and dad and all the wackoness that went down with that, having them there at the house. And then just me, me not being strong enough to like juggle everything and strong enough to lay down the law when my parents are there. I was 25 at that time, but yeah, that's how that started. Yes. I was discovered in the subway and yeah, it happened from there. And then I have another question. (laughs) Because then you said that when you were going to come out with your album and everything, and then they found out you were grown up in the children of God, that you got all this media coverage, Oprah and all that kind of stuff. And you said that at that time you hadn't really processed everything because everything was still really new. I think it took a lot of us a lot of years. Still now we're starting to process some of it. At what point did you really start to process Because like for me, I didn't even realize I was abused until years afterwards. Yeah. And so at what point were you like, oh, my God, I was abused. (laughs) Like, oh, crap. I think a lot of us had that moments at some point where we were like, holy shit. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I want to say it was 2005. It was that year just before getting signed when my parents were back and all my brothers and sisters were back. And I think probably like a little time before that, I had stopped reading the letters. But I think really what started it was a spiritual shift. And right before my brothers and sisters and everybody came back, I was studying Gnosticism, which is, it's like mysticism, like Christianity, but the mystical version. And that really helped me because I, I remember I was still reading like mountain men and all the, all of those things. And I was trying to talk about them and promote them to, to my boyfriend. And he was like, Susan, there's this person that I want you to meet. And it was his mentor, his guru. He introduced me to him and he started telling me stories about how the Christ like force it's equal to Krishna or Buddha. And there are other tales and myths that happened prior to the biblical Abrahamic teachings that echo or that mirror the same story, the same 
idea. And when that happened, it blew my mind. And it really started me to think differently. Okay, hold on a second here. Maybe Heavenly City is not in the moon. Maybe, maybe there's some, something different going on here. Because I was desperate, you guys. I remember. Oh, right. I was oh, yeah, for sure. There was a moment where I was like, I can't, I don't want to sing in the subway anymore. But I was like fighting these two worlds. I was trying to reconcile these two worlds. And so I was like, I don't want to sing in the subway. So I tried getting jobs. I I was like temp jobs and restaurant jobs. And I was trying to make money, but I didn't know what to do because I didn't want to go to school. And I, I was like really resisting. And so then I remember my lowest point, I was canning. Yeah, I, I, I went and I tried canning for five to 10 minutes and I was disgusted with myself. And I was like, there's got to be more to life than this. Stop, like, I took stuff. a can and I put like a, a freaking thing on it. And I was like, please help. And I was begging from car to car at a light. And it's what I knew how to do. And yeah, at the moment, I was like, what am I doing? I'm lying to these people because growing up, we used to can and poster saying, can you please give us some money to help our missionary work? But our missionary work was us eating. To some degree. A lot, so a lot of a degree. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we'd take pictures of stuff that had happened like years ago. Like another home did. Even. Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah. We went two years ago and gave water in the flood and I have pictures right here. See, this is the, all the stuff that we do. Yeah. <laughs> and then you combine all those into your little newsletter or whatever. Yeah. A little <laughs> embellishment. Yeah. Embellishment. <laughs> so I was still in that same mind frame. And I remember this one time I'd gone to a bar and I had, had drunk like so many shots of vodka and I was drunk and I was throwing up. And that morning I was like, please, if there's a God, one of those moments, <laughs> show me the yeah. truth. And then I met this guy who really started opening my eyes to other things. And then I started going off on my own and reading a lot, reading a lot of philosophies and religions and everything. Mm -hmm. And I was like, wait a second, there's a bigger picture. There's a bigger story here. We were only given a droplet of this pool of story. They cherry pick these things and they use them out of context. And then they paint this whole elaborate world with it, which is built upon a sort of a hoax. And so... That was really when I was like, okay, this is crazy. And then I was like, okay, maybe I should go to therapy. And so around the time, I'm not sure if it was a little bit before or after mom and dad and all the kids were there, but I started really trying to research stuff. And then mom and dad and all the kids were there. And then I was like, I want to start going to therapy. And I started going to therapy and I went to they specialized in speaking with former cult members. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. And that was interesting because I, I was still so in denial. Mm-hmm. But that, then once I started talking about it and hearing myself talk about this stuff, but like with such shame, like mm-hmm. I wasn't able to just be like, blah, 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 blah. She had to really start pulling things out of me and then I would say things and I would feel so ashamed in a weird way almost as if I had done these things and then once I started talking about it I was like wait a second this was done to me (laughs) I am a real human being that shouldn't be treated with this exploitation and then I became very 
distraught and very angry. And I remember being in the shower crying, why did this happen to me? How could you do this to your children? Not just for me, but for all the family kids. Ricky, that triggered me to have these spells of sobbing and crying because I did not like the way that he was portrayed as well. It was just really heartbreaking for me. And I don't know the full story. You guys can definitely fill that in. And I'm just like dying to know more about all of that. Because like, I've never met him, but he was Davidito. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. That I was raised to hold in such high regard. Every single thing that I did was compared to this person Mm -hmm. in my head. I had to hear about this guy from sunup to sundown. It was so troubling. And I think that when I saw that, it triggered me to go and start to do some research and start to read, to go on the blogs and read. And and then I saw all the posts and it was so enlightening. And I'm so grateful that there were people that that spoke up because otherwise we wouldn't have known. Yeah. We've met a lot of different ex-members from our cult in doing this and no matter what area of the world they were in what level they were in or out of whatever like the rings of the inner circle no matter where they were everyone seems to have a very similar experience of holy shit i have not only been lied to my whole life i've been abused my whole life it hits you really hard when you realize Mm -hmm. what has been done to you like you were saying jemima like it for somebody that that hasn't happened to, it's really hard to understand that veil falling of, wait, all of that was abuse that wasn't supposed to happen. Mm-hmm. And just getting hit with that, it's a lot to shift through. I think we laugh at some of the things that we say about this, our situation, just because we're like, yes, exactly. That's exactly the same thing I went through. That's exactly the same mind shift I had to deal with. It's so much to process. And Uh, All I can say is that's amazing that you found the strength not only to make the decisions that you did under the mindset you were in, but also to be able to reach out and go for help and and support and therapy, which is probably one of the most important steps that I think any anyone that's gone through the the sort of level of trauma that we've seen needs to do. I'm in awe. I'm (laughs) mad respect for you (laughs) and all that you've done already in your journey. So much respect to you too as well. I think that you're you are doing God's work actually. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you are. You really are. Uh, it's an honor for us, really. It is. Oh, yeah. And a lot of people have told us it's opened up a lot of conversations with my family and all of this. And it's opened up a lot of conversations with my family too. And it's been a very healing journey. It also gives me a kind of sense of community because I I realize that there's a lot of other people that feel very similarly to the way that I feel. We all tend to feel so alone in our battles and in our difficulties. And we're just like, nobody understands and da-da-da. But a lot of people do understand, actually. And to me, it makes the load a little lighter to know that someone else can empathize and sympathize and understand where you've been, where we've been. I think that's a lot of the reason why like we got to hang together because (laughs) the rest of the world just doesn't, just doesn't really get it. The best way that I described it when I left is it's like growing up on an alien planet. Okay. 
Mm. It's like, imagine yourself in the Truman Show, right? Yes. Like pretty much that's what our yes. life was. It was a bubble of fakeness and everybody <sighs> fake and us being exploited for their benefit. That was basically mm -hmm. the bottom line of it. And when you come to mm -hmm. that realization, it is, it's huge. And it is like your entire world just completely shattering. Another way that I describe it is imagine a tapestry. So your whole life being woven is like or tapestry being woven. And then now we have to go back and try and undo, take out some of these things, but you can't just take out one little thread because that one thread is going to pull a whole bunch of other threads with it. And then you have to adjust all those other threads. It's not like we can just be like, oh yeah, this happened, blah, blah, blah. And now I'm fine. That thread moving is going to move a lot of other threads. You look at the tapestry from the back and you're like, ooh, hot mess. But then you look at it from the front and you're like, ooh, damn, that looks good. Wow. <laughs> so to me, it's like we have to learn to view ourselves from the other side, view ourselves from the way that other people see us and not the way that we see ourselves. Because I'm constantly just, oh my God, I'm so weak. I'm such a mess. My life is all just, ah, I can't get anything together. And then everybody else is, oh, you're so wonderful. And I'm just like, uh, <laughs> that's what I'm like. Okay, turn the tapestry around. Look at the other side. <laughs> it's so funny that you mentioned the tapestry because that is such a strong symbol in my world, in my head. And like, I was mm. thinking yesterday about how all of us, we are like this weird and interesting tapestry because of all of the reweaving, undoing and reweaving yeah. that we've had to do to reconcile these two worlds. And so now yeah. it's this like super unique, interesting tapestry. But I think for me, right now in my life, it's so important for me to connect. And I have not done that <laughs> enough. And so just hearing you say that is so beautiful because it's so important. And I think that part of the ploy of the adults and of the powers that be growing up was to separate us. Like you, yep. like you mentioned in the beginning, they would always, once people started bonding, they would pull it apart. They would separate us. And it's yep. weird because for all the talk of communal living and living together there was still that okay manipulative factor that was tied into that. yeah yeah and for me I have felt like I have been running away for mm -hmm. so long this just energy of trying to make it survive not just monetarily but energetically my, my like my soul I've been running and not really thinking about like collaboration because i didn't have the bandwidth to, to do. And so yeah, all the processing that I've done has led me to this place where I realize that is the most important thing that we have and it, it mm -hmm. can change our lives so much. So yeah, I'm really grateful to be able to connect with you today. Oh yeah. Us, Us too. too. <laughs> and you're totally right. We can find strength in each other. Yeah. And we can help each other. I really want to talk about what you mentioned before about trauma, right? Like how it takes time for you to process it. And the way that I see it is that when these traumatic things happen to you or when these sort of like things happen to you that you have not processed, it's just this egg that sits yeah. inside of you. Mm. It's an egg and it's poisoning you on the inside. 
It's just poisoning you on the inside. And that egg has to hatch sooner or later. But the more that you put it off, the more it's just like poisoning you, poisoning you. There are some people that have gone to their graves not having processed this stuff. And the the time that you're ready to process it is so individual, right? Everybody takes different amounts of time to be able to sit with this stuff. But when it does hatch, when you are able to sit with your trauma and process it, it grows and it hatches into this beautiful thing inside of you that nourishes you and can nourish other people as well. But it takes you really having to go through the pain of allowing it to hatch (laughs) and be birthed inside of you. And there are so many people that I know that have gone through these sorts of things and they don't go to therapy and and they don't have the wherewithal to process it. And I totally understand that. I think it just takes a lot of bravery and facing the truth. Yeah, I think think a lot of people, and this is me too, what's scary about it is you have to be ready to go through it. You have to be able to deal with the fear that of being able to face how much you are fucked up so to speak we're not fucked up any more than you know anyone else's but there is that real fear that's why a lot of times people don't want to look at it because they're like what if i find Mm -hmm. out that i'm just like this (laughs) somebody's going to pull a a chair out from you and what you've been holding on to is going to just collapse and and that's the fear that's the fear that you have of going into starting to work on those things you're exactly Mm -hmm. right you can't start that process until you're ready Mm -hmm. yeah it's being honest with ourselves is one of the hardest things to do. <laughs> yeah. I think we lie, we lie to ourselves more than we lie to anybody else. <laughs> yeah, it's so true. When you get out, it, it takes a really long time to be okay with your own thoughts and to trust yourself and to trust that your own thoughts are valid. I'm working on that now, yeah. even <laughs> yeah. in Not my so life. Important. It's just ongoing. So important. There's a Facebook group that we're in for cults, not an ex-Children of God group. But a teacher wrote in and said, there's this kid that I'm pretty sure. I read that. You read that one. There's this kid that I'm pretty sure is in some cult. And what can I do as a teacher? And what you said just now, I think would be one of the most important messages that anybody can give to someone else that's stuck in a cult-ish or some sort of dogmatic thinking spiral of those doubts, those questions, that stuff that comes into your head, listen to those. Because those are real and exactly like you said, valid. It's one of the most important messages that you can tell anyone that's stuck in that Hmm. head spiral space of (laughs) don't listen to your intuition. Yeah. Deep stuff. (laughs) (laughs) It's true. We should always listen to our inner voice. Yeah. What's really interesting as well is this feeling of contentment with yourself or like this feeling mm-hmm. that like okay, my decisions, I like my decisions and I'm okay with them. I had to learn how to yeah. do that. Mm. I didn't know how to do that. It's mm. <laughs> a good one. In fact, yeah. we were all programmed to do the opposite of that. Yep, exactly. That's why I was always doing things. I was like, why am I getting to these situations? And it's because the decisions that I was making were the opposite of what I actually wanted in my life. 
because I was trained to steer away from what I wanted to steer away from my feelings and my thoughts and my desires. And so having to reroute that and go towards them was one of the most scariest things that I've ever done in my life. Yes, it's very true. And another thing on that line that we talked about is knowing your values, because when you know your values, then you can live in line with them. And then Mm. the decisions that you make, you're comfortable with because you know Mm -hmm. your values. So many people don't establish their actual values. Like what is really important to me in life? Is it honesty? Is it knowledge? Is it cleanliness? Is it financial stability? Whatever it is, it's really important to see what are your values because a lot of times when we're not happy, it's because we're not living in line with our values, but it's because we don't know what they are. The decisions that you make, if they're in line with your values, you're going to be happy with them. True. It reminds me of this story. I love telling stories. (laughs) So there was a guy that lived in England, and he had always wanted to get a house on the Irish countryside. He wanted to fish all day and just have some sheep and live that simple country life. For 20 years, he had that dream, and he never did it. So he decided to go out and get a coach and talk to them about it and figure out why he had never achieved his dream. So the person said to him, okay, what is your dream? So he told him the dream, and he goes, okay, is it ecological? Is it good for you? Yeah, of course it's good for me. I would be completely happy. I'd be fishing all day. Okay, okay. Is it good for your family? Oh, my family. Oh, no, I don't think they'd like it. My wife would be mad. She'd be moved away from all her friends. My children would be upset. They'd have to change schools. They wouldn't know anybody. There's your answer. It was your dream, but it's not in line with your values because obviously your family is very important to you. And that's the reason why you never accomplished that. Because internally, something was telling you, this is not the right thing to do. So once you sit down and think about things like that, is it good for me? Is it ecological? Is it good for the people that I love? Then you make those decisions in full knowledge that you are in line with your values and that you're doing the right thing and that you're completely happy. That really like blew my mind because Mm -hmm. a lot of times people have these dreams and then you just don't think it through though. And it's just up in your head and never really going anywhere because in actuality, if you stop and think about it, it's not really going to work out the way that you're dreaming about it working out. Wow. I've never heard it told like that before that this was really eye opening. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that was amazing. That's one of those yeah, stories just, that really oof <laughs> to yeah. me. Yeah. Because the decision-making process is something that I'm still learning and trying to embody. So this was mm-hmm. really, wow, that makes a lot of sense. And I think that's what I've been trying to do. But hearing it said like this is just definitely really eye-opening. I'm happy I could be anointed by the spirit. (laughs) Oh my God. (laughs) We forgot to tell our cult joke. We did. Whisper has cult jokes. Mm, Okay, let's hear it. Often our conversations end up, you know, being 
a lot more on the kind of soul seeking and heart searching type of stuff. So we like to bring a little levity to it too and make sure (laughs) make everybody laugh. (laughs) It's like a little band-aid, a little band-aid after that alcohol. (laughs) (laughs) Did you find them? Oh yeah. My uncle started a cult and married 20 women. People are telling me it's a terrible situation, but I think there's a lot of nuance. (laughs) (laughs) Nuance. (laughs) Nuance. Nuance. Oh, oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) That took me a while. (laughs) That's particularly good for us because we had to call everybody uncle and auntie. So that's pretty funny. Right. For us. Yes. (laughs) It applies. It applies. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Oh, yeah, this is another one I love. Um, what do you call it when a cult is looking to get a loan for a property? Compound interest. Oh, my God. <laughs> no, they did not. <laughs> I love it. Oh, do you guys ever think about the communal aspects of life? And think about what it would take to actually do that and have it be something that is like positive for mankind. I do, actually. I do. I thought about it a lot, to be honest. But then I had roommates and I was like, never mind, this is never going to work. No. (laughs) You have to have some very pliable people to be able to live together. what I was thinking is that you have to have this sort of like dominator, this sort of one, this sort of one person to glue it all together, to whip out any dissent or to keep everything in line. Yeah. Yeah. Because when we were in, in Russia, that same home that I lived in that started that project, we were called the nut home, the new Ural team. And it was all, it was the first place that I ever lived that didn't technically have any adults there. Mm. We were all 19 and 20. Technically, we weren't really adults. Like you were saying, you're 21 and you've never done anything. It was like that. So it was all second generations, except for one one lady was like 27-year-old from Poland. And Mm. she was considered our adult. It was constant arguing, screaming and yelling. Each meeting had to have one person ruling it. And then we had to take turns because nobody wanted just one person to do it. All of a sudden, everybody had an opinion. It was after the charter. So we felt like, hey, now I'm allowed to have an opinion. And we all wanted to do things our way. We were nine people living in, I can't even tell you how small this apartment was. It was called a three bedroom, but in Russia, that includes the living room. (laughs) And the bath, (laughs) the kitchen was Like you could barely walk into it. I'm talking tiny freaking apartment that we lived in. And Mm. our weekly meetings were just like huge balls of rage. Everybody just yelling their opinion and screaming. Mm. We managed. We got along. We scheduled ourselves. We did our work. But yeah, there should have been somebody there to bring down the gavel. All right, everybody. (laughs) Order in the court. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Either that or that the focus or the ideal ism of what you're doing is actually the boss so to speak sometimes if you do have somebody that's at the top the guy in charge the girl in charge you can you can end up going sideways because yeah you end up like you're quote-unquote following that person and it's yeah you know you run into those problems but if you're doing it for a certain purpose say there's 
I don't know, like three families and they're like insanely passionate about rescuing animals and they go and they open, you know, like they find a farm and they all lift it like that would work because their ideal is what's pulling them together. I think those are the areas that it could work. It's like people who practice ethical non-monogamy, right? It's not to say that's a better way or a worse way, but if you find the people that all come together that prefer that style of relationship, that's when mm-hmm. it works. You know? Yeah, I think that there is the possibility of it being successful for people to to live together and have a communal living situation. That's just my thinking on it. Is that is the idealism behind it? I'm the oldest of of eleven, and so there wasn't a time in my life <laughs> that I could remember that I wasn't responsible for someone else. Wow. Not, not there's not a moment in my life. And then you're raised being like, okay, the only thing that you can prepare for is a life of a missionary mom. That's the only thing that you're allowed to do. And so here I am now in my forties and it's the first time in my life I'm living in a place by myself. And yeah, I'm a little bit still going through that. What the fuck am I doing? What, what am I supposed to do now? <laughs> I've, got, I've got this, like, I got this free time and I'm like, what? Okay. What do I do? Feeling ever go away because I live by myself. Sometimes I walk around my apartment. I'm just like, my God, I don't have anyone telling me what to do. I don't have to (laughs) take care of anyone. Like, I I wonder when that's going to go away. It's just such a blessing to be able to have my own space. Yeah. I don't know if that is ever going to fully go away. That sort of deep understanding of what it really feels like to not be controlled. Mm -hmm. You have to have lived in a place where you're so intensely controlled to be able to appreciate that experience. And I don't think there's very many people, aside from people that have been in in a cult or in jail and prison for long periods of time. I think those are the only kind of situations where you can really fully understand what it's like to have literally no choice (laughs) for yourself. And then now, and yeah, Yeah. and now having it for the first time, I don't Mm -hmm. think that you forget how amazing that is. It is amazing. It's great that we can appreciate what may seem insignificant to others. Even to me, just I can do my kitchen however I want. I can have whatever bed sheets. Like if I want black ones, I can have black ones. Nobody's going to tell me what I can or cannot do. And I really relish it. I love it. And I think it's amazing that we can enjoy something as simple as free time and not being told what to do but it becomes Mm -hmm. one of those great joys of life to us (laughs) (laughs) yes the ability to sit on the couch and just do whatever i want is like the purest joy (laughs) yeah and watch whatever fucking show you want without like feeling guilty or (laughs) yeah yeah and some people are probably like saying oh maybe some people could say oh you were kids kids don't have autonomy anyway teenagers can't really but it's no you don't understand (laughs) it's not about like that you couldn't just leave the house whenever you wanted it's every single option every single choice everything was controlled and policed down to like your very thoughts and i'm not just in that moment either it's like your future was planned for you so it, right. that, that's where the choice is gone. It's not, oh, maybe I could be an astronaut. Maybe I could be a rancher. Like that those, too. There's no such thing as that. You knew you couldn't get a, a further education. You know what, <laughs> what I thought, what I had to look forward to? I was looking forward to living in the woods, in the wilderness, essentially, <laughs> to escape the Antichrist forces 
and having to hide out because we were going to be hunted and to basically be shot in the back by a laser gun. Remember that poster? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to I'm trying to poster and witness I'm being like assassinated. Ah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I, I remember being a kid and being so I don't know why, but like I just had this image of myself being really hairy in the woods because I wasn't allowed I didn't have because I was thinking about what it would be to be an adult. I was like, okay. Right. I'm gonna be this adult with hairy armpits and hairy legs in the woods. <laughs> And I don't know why that was like my image. <laughs> that was my image of myself. And I was mortified. Brilliant. I was mortified. And I was like, I'm just going to be by myself. I'm only going to have my brothers and sisters. I'm never going to have any friends. Like what? It was terrifying. It's funny and sad. <laughs> uh, like so many of our stories. <laughs> <laughs> they're 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 only funny now. <laughs> yeah. And only if you have a dark sense of humor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I remember being in Italy in this home where I was like probably maybe six and my older brother was, I don't know, 15 or 16 or something like that. And they would go around the room and pray over each person, like lay, the laying on mm. of hands, the anointing of oil, the whole thing. But my brother had collected a couple watches, a few watches, and he requested to be prayed over for a spirit of materialism or something like that. And so then <laughs> after the prayer, he went, ah, and he like threw away his watches. <laughs> oh. And I oh felt God. so sorry for him. So I was like, oh my God, that was his only little thing that he had. Yeah. And and everyone was like so happy and so excited. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, that my brother cast away his possessions. <laughs> wow. Yeah. It's little things like that, little memories like that, that I have never really shared with anyone because they're so tiny. But those are the little snippets that I have. Yeah. The stuff, and they're the stuff that sticks with you. Yeah, it really helps to process it just to get it out because in your head, it's a jumble of thoughts. But once you verbalize it, it's a little bit clearer to your brain, even just verbalizing it. And then it's actually you've made it into reality. And then Mm. it really helps with the processing to verbalize things. Just say it, even if it's uncomfortable and difficult. It's Mm. like cleaning out the wound a little bit. Yeah. Wow. And then also this next step further, which is like what we've been experiencing doing this podcast is when you verbalize it, sometimes your thoughts, you are putting into words what someone else has been trying to put into words for a really long time. And suddenly they're now processing something that they needed to process before for a long time, you know? And sometimes it's like the simple things where you're like, okay, if I had stopped to think about it in that way, I would have, I would have realized it, but I didn't. I watched this video clip of someone, actually a life coach. They said, anytime you are super critical on yourself and the things that you hate about yourself, remember the only reason that you think those things are wrong with you is because someone else told you that. Hmm. Right? It's a simple thing, but for whatever reason, 
putting it in those words. It gave me another tool to use when I get these hateful thoughts about myself or doubting myself or whatever it might be. I'm like, oh my God, I'm making myself wrong. Not because that's actually how I feel, but because someone else told me that's how I should feel about myself. And now I have a new tool. So yeah, that's why I think it's so important to have conversations with people and tell your story and just share the way that you see things because you're going to help somebody else. Yeah. Wow. No matter what, someone's going to hear you and you're, it's going to help someone else. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think for me, it's been so crucial to say things out loud because we weren't allowed to speak our mind. So at night, just before bed was like my most favorite time because I would just go into my mind. I would just go Mm -hmm. into these worlds that I created in my head and I would just live in them and I would experience them. And that was the only thing I had that was my pleasure in life in terms of something that belonged to me. And I would make up these fantasies and these scenarios and I would go to parties and I would have friends and I would go to school and I would read books and I would do all these things in my head. And at some point, I realized that it was very hard for me to even speak to people to begin with. I could mm-hmm. sing, I could do something scripted, but having a conversation and not becoming devastatingly afraid and fearful was something that I had to learn how to do because there was a disconnect between my thought processes and the ability to speak. Hmm. It wasn't like a flowing thing. There wasn't a flowing process between my brain and my mouth. I would have three thoughts in my head and my mouth was like struggling to keep up with them almost because my brain (laughs) processing was so much (laughs) faster than my ability to like just speak my mind. And, And sometimes I'll not even really know what I'm feeling until I force myself to use that ability because that the speaking ability I feel is very tied to your body Hmm. and your feelings. And it's like a primal thing. Whereas your brain is just, it can just go off on its own. It's almost like disconnected from that. It can, for me at least. No, for sure. The disassociation Um, is a big deal when you've had trauma. Yes. (laughs) Disassociation. So speaking really helps to connect those like clamps that were disconnected. Uh Yes, exactly. Very true. It it's like it- sucking you back into your body so that you can control your mechanism. Yes, yeah. exactly. It's a really good way of saying it, actually. That's- it really is. <laughs> yeah. See, there you go. Putting into words what we all been trying to think about. <laughs> I love it. Yes. That's why we have to have these conversations. That's why we're doing this. Because like we say, we heal in public so others can heal in private. Wow. It's these type of difficult conversations are the ones that we need to have and we need to open them up. Everybody has uh, some sort of mental health problem. Everybody has physical problems. Everybody has mental issues. There's no such thing as like the perfect brain. (laughs) Just like there's no, my body is perfect. There's nothing wrong with me. We all have issues, but a lot of people don't acknowledge them. Like you Mm -hmm. said, they'll go to the grave carrying that trauma and not processing it. And then you can't really live. Because you're living in a brown paper bag in there in your own little head processing all your trauma when you could come out of that bag and be whatever you want to be, do whatever you want to do. It's while we're here, we're above ground, we can do anything we want. The world is our oyster. Mm, I love it. (laughs) Yes, this has been so great. So great talking to you, Susan, and connecting with you. This is fantastic. Thank you so much. Fantastic. 
What's the name of your podcast? Did, did we say that already? Am I just like, oh, oh yeah, out? it's the Susan Cagle show in my fourth episode at this point. But if you guys wouldn't mind coming on my podcast, that would be awesome. Yeah, <laughs> oh, we would we'd love to. Honor. That'd be awesome. Yes. 